You're listening to the Live Well Radio Podcast Show. A wealth of information for a life of inspiration. And here's your host, Brett Coleman. Hey guys, today is Financially Fit Friday. And today I have the great pleasure of sitting down with Florence Brummer from her law office of the same name here in Anthem, Arizona. And she's going to give us some advice and some tips on how to become more responsible or organized in the area of wills and trust. Because as you may or may not know, a good number of people today uh, do not have a trust or a will in place. And I think a lot has to do with it being a sensitive subject, but the process of getting it done can also be very overwhelming. So to help us sort through some of the things, perhaps even simplify the process, I'm here with Florence Brummer, and uh, she's going to lay it out for us and maybe simplify it and, and make it easy. And, she, and at the end of the interview, she'll uh, re- give you her information and how you can find her. So hi, Florence. Hi, everybody. Thank you for sharing your time with our listeners today. How are you? I'm great. It's my pleasure to be here. How long have you been doing estate planning? I am going into my 19th year. 19 years. Mm-hmm. So you were just a kid. You started? Uh, not really. <laughs> I was actually an older law student, if you can believe it, because I went part-time. Um, so I started practicing law when I was 27. 27. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that considered uh, older? A little bit older. I'd say most um, students out of law school taking the bar are more in the 23 to 25 range. Okay. So it wasn't like you were 50 getting started. I've heard that before. Doctors getting started at 50 years old and and finding their passion a little bit later in life. So would you consider this before we get going, would you consider it a passion? What you do? I think I do. That's good. Because anytime you enjoy doing something, you tend to be pretty good at it. I would agree with that. More than a job. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, a career and, and a nice passion. So let's get, let's get into this. So what have you found to be the biggest reasons people uh, aren't prepared for their departure from earth? Uh, I would say probably the biggest reason is people don't want to think about it. I think that's probably the number one reason. I think another reason is people are ex- scared that it's going to be very expensive and they're not going to be able to afford getting prepared for it. I think those are probably the top two reasons. Okay. And was there ever a point in time uh, prior to you becoming an attorney that you are one of those people who kind of dragged your feet? Yes. I have a very embarrassing story that I tell my clients when they come to me. And if they are embarrassed, because a lot of people will come to me and they'll say, oh, I've been thinking about this forever and I didn't do it and I'm so embarrassed. And they like I will, would judge them, which of course I never would judge them. But I always tell them to put them at ease. I tell them my own embarrassing story, which was I was an attorney for a full 10 years and never did my estate plan. It floated around in my head. I knew exactly what I wanted. I'm married. I have three daughters. It's very easy. It would take me a couple of hours to put it on paper. And it took me 10 years. 10 years. See that, guys? So you're not the only ones. Maybe if you don't have one in place, don't feel bad. There's plenty of us out there. So you, people come to you with for advice. So how have you helped them 
in the process overcome their fears or their anxiety or the confusion surrounding this topic? Sure. A lot of people are, are very scared at the beginning because they think it, they think it's closer to maybe doing their taxes and like doing your taxes every year can be so painful. And really the estate planning is not as painful as they think. And I would say 90% of people when we get done, they say, that wasn't bad at all. That didn't hurt. That wasn't painful because there's just really a small amount of information and and things you have to get together to get your estate plan in place. It's not as bad as you think. They say there's two things people hate to do in life that is speak or they're afraid of, right? Getting on stage to speak and then dying. So yeah, you have a 50-50 shot with uh, them. You have that one as far as helping them get over that fear. So let's talk about this. Um, what is the difference between a will, mm-hmm. a trust, an estate, and living wills? Want to start with the wills? Uh, you know what? I'll start with an estate first okay. because that's just sort of the umbrella term of whatever you're doing. Okay. So everything under an umbrella called an estate um, would be your will, a trust, if you're doing a trust, powers of attorney. So that's your estate. It's just everything under it. And um, the difference between a will and a trust is very simple too. The will and the trust do very similar things in that they distribute your property to the people that you want it distributed to, who are easily just called your beneficiaries. So in a will, you just say, here's my beneficiaries. If people are married, they'll have a will. And for most married people, they leave everything to each other. And then they list their beneficiaries. For people with kids, their beneficiaries are usually their kids. And if they don't have children, then they just need to tell me who their beneficiaries are. And there's no right or wrong answer to who your beneficiaries are. It's whoever you want to leave your property to. So it can be charities. It can be your siblings. It can be your mother. It can be your next door neighbor. It's whoever you want to leave your property to. A trust does the same exact thing, but the main purpose of a trust is to avoid probate. In a family living revocable trust, and that is the most common type of trust that people are going to do, it that your property goes into it. You do what's called funding it. It doesn't keep you from being able to spend your money. You can spend every last dollar if you want. But if something happens to you, your property is already in the trust and no one has to file a probate. That is the biggest difference between a will and a trust. A trust, sort of the best way I describe it to people, it's kind of doing your probate in advance because you're putting your property in the trust. It's not hard for your home. You just quick claim deed it into the trust for retirement accounts or accounts that are payable on death. You just make the trust the beneficiary rather than a laundry list of beneficiaries. Then it's all in the trust. If Again, if something happens to you, it just passes to your trust through your trust and your successor trustee 
takes care of all the um, distributions. And a successor trustee is very similar to an executor for a will. In Arizona, they call executors personal representatives and either a personal representative or a successor trustee is just making sure your wishes are followed and your property is distributed how you want it to be. Okay, very good. Now, is there uh, maintaining? Do things change within that? Sure. Oh, yeah. So what I generally tell people is take your trust out once a year, maybe once every other year. See if anything's changed. Have you inherited a large sum of money? Um, Not only is that a great thing, but it might change how you want to do your estate planning. Have you divorced? Have you divorced and remarried? Have you had more children? Have you adopted children? There might be things where you want to change things around a little bit. Has somebody started to get sick and you want to do things differently in your estate plan? So sure, you got to take out the estate plan once a year, once every other year and see if any changes need to be made. And most of the time for most people, if they do need changes, they're not, you don't have to start over from square one. You just need to have a quick amendment made with whatever the changes are to make sure that your estate plan is up to date. And do you offer, once you establish the trust for them, do you offer that services? Those oh, th- sure. type of service? Oh, yeah. Yeah. People can come back to me anytime. And, um, and, and if someone isn't even sure if they need a change, um, I don't have a charge for just looking at your estate plan and talking about it. That's just part of my free consultation services. If I'm actually need to, if I have to do something where I have to draft something um, or we have to draft a new document, then of course we charge for that based on whatever it is that they need. But just coming in and talking, there's absolutely no charge for that. That's nice. And let's talk about the D word, divorce. Uh, People do tend to get divorced. does a person who set the will up need to be the one who's coming in? Let's say, oh, well, I guess, yeah, how does that work? Well, usually for married people, they will have set it up together. Right. So if it's a, um, they can, re- if it's a will, they'll each have their own will. So one spouse would just revoke their own will. If they did a trust, um, because they would be co-trustees, either of them could revoke it upon a divorce. Arizona also has a statute that's very handy for people, which is if you divorce, your trust is or will is just automatically void because what would happen was someone would divorce and they forgot they had a will. They just totally forgot about it. It got uh, thrown into a box when uh, property was getting moved around and then one of them dies after they're divorced and then the other spouse is going, well, I would like all that person's property. Well, Arizona has a statute that says that cannot happen. In a very kind of odd circumstance, I think people would be um, be surprised that this happens. Sometimes people divorce and want to leave stuff to their spouses. Sometimes it's actually part of their divorce decree where they have to leave each other a life insurance policy or something because of the children. But sometimes the parties 
actually still do um, care about each other and want to leave each other something, if they want to do that, they have to redo their estate planning to leave something to their ex-spouse. They cannot just rely on the estate plan that they had during their marriage. Are most states, I know you said Arizona is like that, are most states like that? I couldn't say. And because I'm um, an, an Arizona attorney and only licensed in Arizona, I wouldn't be able to comment on what other states do. Sure. Uh, how about splitting stuff up? That's, let's say there's uh, furniture, you have the dishes, you have the car, the house. There's separate categories for each of those? Well, there is, but the easiest way to do it and how most people feel comfortable enough doing it is just to do percentages of property to people. Every once in a while, people will say, hey, I want my so-and-so son to get my house. I am not a big fan of specific bequests to people because say that person then gets rid of that house and then everyone's trying to figure out, well, are they supposed to get the house that's owned now or was it only that house? You know, that sort of thing. It can cause more problems. So I think the best way to do it is just to designate a dollar amount to people or or percentages. Easiest way, if a very, very easy example If someone has four children, everything is divided equally between the four kids. And you're not getting down into so-and-so gets this, so-and-so gets that. You just put it all in a pile and the successor trustee basically, or the um, personal representative in the case of a will, would gather everything together, liquidate it, and issue payments to the four beneficiaries. Um, What's nice about that is you just don't have, you're not like trying to track down property from the ends of the earth and does this property still exist? I will add this as an aside. In wills, you have what's called, and you can have, and I add this to any will that I draft. It's called a personal property addendum. And that personal property addendum it's sort of an attachment to your will. And what it does is it allows you to designate certain pieces of personal property to either it can be someone who's your beneficiary or it doesn't even have to be a beneficiary. And I'll give an example. So say, for example, your daughter always wanted to have grandma's ring. You would just identify on the addendum, grandma's ring, you know, maybe describe it a little bit, ruby ring, whatever, so people know what ring you're talking about, and then say that to my daughter, so-and-so. It can also be to people, like I said, who are not beneficiaries. So if you wanted your neighbor to get your patio furniture, you could do it that way. It's only for personal property. It's not for money. So if you wanted your nephew to get $100, that would either need to be built into the body of your will or trust, whatever estate plan that you have. That's neat. And it took me right back to uh, my cook, our cooking show, because, you know, most people on this podcast listening right now have some very beautiful quality cookware in the possession that's going to outlive them. And I have heard on numerous times when they're making that purchase or that investment, they're saying, this is going to go on to my daughter. This is going to go on to my son. My son-in-law, you know, they're going to heirloom this cookware on. So what you just said there makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we covered estates. And then what was also on the list? We have living wills. 
Libby and, Wills. And powers of attorney? And powers of attorney, yeah. Okay. All right. So a power of attorney is only effective when you are alive. When you die, your power of attorney goes away. There's different types of powers of attorney. There's the durable power of attorney, also known as the financial power of attorney. There's two ways it can be set up. You can either make it effective upon your disability or it can be made effective immediately. So if it's effective on your disability, if you were not able to make your own financial decisions anymore, whoever you designated as your power of attorney would make those for you. Sometimes people will make them effective immediately. Um, I see that in cases where uh, one spouse does it for another spouse because the one spouse travels all the time. So the other spouse needs to be able to take care of business while that spouse is on the road. Sometimes people do um, a power of attorney that's effective immediately if they are um, terminally ill and they know, hey, I just need someone to take care of everything while I um, am sick and while I'm still living. And then when you pass away, your will or trust would take over. The other type of power of attorney is a healthcare power of attorney. So this is only if you cannot make your healthcare decisions. If you are making your own healthcare decisions, your healthcare power of attorney doesn't kick in. But say, for instance, someone were in a coma and the doctor said, who's going to authorize a blood transfusion or is there anyone to authorize it? You can designate someone to make those decisions for you. Usually for married people, it's the spouses. And then oftentimes they'll choose an alternate person, um, like a child sometimes, you know, an adult child, obviously, or a parent, somebody else who could step in in case the spouse wasn't available. And then the, if the person is not married, they need to choose who it would be, whether it's a significant other or a sibling, next door neighbor, somebody who can make these healthcare decisions. The living will is part of the healthcare um, uh, power of attorney. So it's a way to express your wishes um, of what should happen to you if you are in a persistent vegetative state or an irreversible coma that the doctors reasonably believe that you are not going to come out of. So if you are in that state, you can choose basically one of two options. One option is prolong my life to the greatest extent possible, which is just being kind of being kept on life support kind of indefinitely. And the other one is if I am in that state, and a lot of times people will refer to it as the Terry Shivo situation, if people remember her and what had happened with her, where that woman was in um, a coma for many, many years. And there was a dispute between her husband and her parents on whether she should be kept on life support. So it's a document where you're saying, don't keep me like that. Don't keep me indefinitely on that. Um, my clients will uh, loosely refer to it as the pull the plug document. <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> but, you know, that's how people will refer to it. Um so yeah, that's what a living will is. I know it's kind of confusing because you have like a living trust sure. and you have a will, which it re is regarding your property. And then you have this living will, which is regarding your body. But that's the difference. 
Okay. And, and, and there, is there another difference between that and an advanced medical directive? An advanced medical directive is the same thing as a healthcare power of attorney. Two different titles for the same type of document. Interesting. And we kind of touched on how a person can avoid probate. Any more to, any more to say to that? You know, the trust is really the way to avoid probate. Although for some clients, I, depending on the type of property that they have, I have another system that I use that helps them avoid probate without needing to do um, an expensive trust. A trust um, is a lot more expensive to do than a will. So a lot of times people say, well, my my va- the value of my property isn't that much. Do I really need a trust? And I always say it's really not the value so much as it is the type of property. If you have a lot of real estate, a trust is a great thing because you can put all the properties into the trust. But as an alternative, if you're trying to avoid the cost of doing a trust, and if you just have one residence, the residence you live in, and if most of your other property is in the form of accounts like retirement accounts or investment accounts, bank accounts, there's a way that you can avoid probate by doing um, a will and a couple of other documents associated with it. So you do the will and you say, I want all my property to go to my kids. But then on top of that, you do something called a beneficiary deed and that what that does is if you pass away, your home automatically goes to your children or whoever you designate as beneficiaries. It's whoever you want. Like I said, it could be your neighbor, whoever. You're just designating who the person will be as the beneficiary. And then the beneficiary deed helps you avoid probate. And then if the rest of your property is in accounts, you just have to go to each account um, holder, whatever the bank is, you know, whatever the financial institution is and get a beneficiary designation form. Sometimes they're called payable on death forms and you just fill out the person or people that you want to get those accounts. So with that, uh, triangle of, uh, systems, you can avoid probate if your property falls into those categories. If you have a ton of collector cars, if you have a ton of um, real estate and you're doing investment real estate as well, and you have maybe some companies, I say look at a trust because you can put it all into the trust and make it nice and easy for your beneficiaries. Very well put. So in your experience, what have you found to be the best way to divvy up your stuff? I think the best way is just by percentages. Um, it's a lot easier than trying to say so-and-so gets this house and so-and-so gets this car. Um, and because like I have said, property comes and goes. Most of the time, whatever house you put in your will will not be the house you die in. So if you just say, I divide, I have 10 beneficiaries and they all get 10% of my total estate. That's the best way to do it. And it doesn't have to be equal percentages. Um, I have people who come in and say, for instance, um, they have a niece and a nephew that they care about quite a bit, but they also have one child. So they might leave 15% to the niece, 15% to the nephew, 70% to their child. And it just makes it nice and easy. And they, they're not, they're not, there's no requirement that they have to make this an equal distribution. They're dividing it in the percentages that they want to. 
also doing percentages um, helps you in case you don't have as much money as you thought at the time you were going to pass, that the time that you pass away. So like, say for instance, um, people are living longer and longer. They need more and more money for healthcare. So um, they might be 45 and they might have $5 million. And then they leave, live to be 105. Maybe they don't have that much money anymore. So if they said, I want a million dollars to go to my nephew, a million dollars to go to my niece and everything else to my daughter. Well, what if they got to the situation where they only had 800,000 left? So how would you divide that up? And having the percentages makes that a lot easier. Yeah. And I want their phone number. If they're 45 <laughs> and have 5 million, I want to see how they did it. I know. Me too. I, know, I always use these round uh, figures. No, I love it though. Good optimism. So your suggestions on how to plan your memorial and personalize your send-off would be what? I always <clears throat> say this is just such a personal preference. And I've had so many people do it in so many different ways. Some people will prepay. I find that people who prepay um, are usually on the older side. Um, and they've either purchased a plot or they prepaid for their cremation. Um, and for their send off, oh gosh, I, I don't even know how many mi millions of different ways people have told me that they want to do it. And we can write it up in the will too. Um, it doesn't have to be. Sometimes people will just sort of, uh, there's no requirement that you have to have your send-off wishes written up in any of these documents. And so sometimes people keep that a little bit looser, but we have written it up for people. Some people want to have a party. Um, I've had people say, make it a big Irish wake. Lots of drinking, lots of fun. Like the movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's any way you could do it. Sometimes people will go to a funeral home. They've prepaid for a wake and the burial and a casket. It's just really what you want. But it's always good to think about it and to at least have your wishes known by someone. Otherwise, if you pass away, people are kind of scrambling like, did they want to be cremated? Do they have a plot somewhere? Let somebody know if you've made these plans and if you care. Some people I have, they're like, I don't care. Whatever they want. They can do whatever with me. Yeah, and, and the benefits to prepaying or not prepaying, are, are there many or a few? I don't know. Um, I guess probably a benefit to prepaying is you have a locked-in price. Um, who knows if the prices of burial will go up um, in a large amount as the years progress. Um, I know cremation um, seems to be a very economical way to dispose of um, uh, someone's remains. Um, and so I know a lot of people have been going with cremation. Cremation still remains on the pretty inexpensive side. So I don't know that you necessarily have to prepay for that. But I think if you are thinking about a plot and you're especially thinking about it in a certain area, you might want to look into that to see if you can get locked into those prices. Mm -hmm. And let's say somebody doesn't have uh, any life insurance, and they. But do you see any of that happening where people say, "I don't have any life insurance, but here I want you to create this uh, trust or with this will for me"? Oh, sure. Because even if they don't have life insurance, they still have stuff. They still have things that need to be taken care of. They have a home. They oftentimes have a retirement account that they've been putting money into, maybe an investment account. Might not be all the money in the world, but it's something. And 
if you don't have a will, one thing that people say to me that's a, um, it's a false belief that many people have. They think if they don't have a will, all their property immediately goes to the state or to the the government. That's not true. If you don't have a will, your estate goes by what's called intestate succession. So that means there's a list of succession. It's probably about, about 30 levels deep of different relatives that your property would go to if you don't designate. The first ones are pretty easy. Like if you have a spouse, all your property goes to your spouse. If you don't have a spouse, but you have kids, then kids. If there's no kids and you have parents, then parents, and then your siblings, and then it goes down the line, which I will never have it memorized because it like goes really deep, like second cousins, you know, it goes very, very deep. So you really, really have to know, have no family for your um, estate to go to the state. Like if you don't have that 30 levels, then finally it just goes to the state. But I think that in most cases is rare. Somebody's going to have somebody out there. Um, but if... The thing with intestate succession is you don't have a choice. So say, for instance, um, you don't have kids, but maybe you're not close with your parents and you want your property to go to a charity that has been very important to you or has helped you. Well, if you don't have that estate, it's going to your parents who you're maybe not close with or your parents who who have said, I don't want your things. We're fine. You know, we hope that we outlive you. And, and then your parents have to deal with this instead of you having an estate plan that is designating what you want to happen. So the estate, we've all heard nightmare stories, how it can take forever. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. the the probate, 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 Mm -hmm. right? So what you're doing is setting them up to avoid the hassles and the hurdles and the hoops they would have to, somebody would have to go through, uh, ultimately, to, to get possession of those things. Sure, yeah. So a trust avoids you needing to file a probate at all. In For most people, if the estate is pretty simple, probate ends up not being the worst deal in the world. But it does have all these requirements that if you can avoid it, can uh, make your life as a personal representative or a successor trustee or the people that you're appointing to do this, I mean, you're gone. Like if it's your estate, you're gone. You're probably not caring so much. But the people that you (laughs) put in charge of it are going to care, like how much work they have to put into it. So if you have it set up to them where they don't need to do the probate, and I'll just give, I'll give an example of the most simple probate there is, which is you have to file in court to become personal representative. You Then you get an order that says your personal representative, you have to get it certified and you get letters and then you take that order and you go to the bank and you, you know, liquidate accounts and you put the house up for sale and you do all this stuff now that you have this order. And then you have to publish in the newspaper and then you, um, after four months has passed, and this is in the most easiest probates ever, if, the, if after four months has passed, you file a closing statement with the court saying everything is done. And you also have to mail out notifications to anyone who may be interested parties. That's usually um, spouses, children, parents. Those are usually on the interested party list. Sometimes siblings. You just have to read the statute. So there's all these steps, not 
the hardest thing in the world, but also a, a, a series of extra steps that if you had a trust are completely avoided. Very well said. Appreciate that. That was, that was you know, you're very, you are very good at what you do. Uh, you're very you. thorough. It, it makes it sound uh, much more simplistic than all the stuff being thrown at you at one time. You broke it down beautifully. So I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that. How can they find you? They can find me in a multiple of ways. So my office, again, is the law office of Florence M. Brummer, PC. How do you spell where that? It's um, Florence, like the city in Italy, my middle initial M, and then Brummer, B-R-U-E-M-M-E-R, and then a PC after it for a professional corporation. Our phone number is 623-551-0380. You can email me at florence at brummerlaw.com, B-R-U-E-M-M-E-R-L-A-W. Dot com. You can find me on Instagram at Florence Legally Brunette, on Twitter at F- Florence Law. I have a personal Facebook page, but I um, just use it actually to post like business things. Like I, I have a, your podcast is so cool and I wish people could see this, that there's very cool mic- microphones and <laughs> um, and and the setup with the stands and it's very cool. Uh, I don't have any of this. It's just me talking into a microphone with a USB cord attached to my laptop. But I have a podcast on SoundCloud called Bonafide Legal Podcast, and I do a weekly post on my personal Facebook page so people can connect to it that way as well. I think that's it. You're very accessible, very knowledgeable, and very friendly. We appreciate your time very much. And if anybody has any questions, they can email us personally and we'll get those questions to you or they can get in touch with you directly. That sounds perfect. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.